Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for uh, another look into the world of aquariums from a uniquely different perspective. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank everybody so much for the continued support that we've been getting. Uh, this, uh, we've launched our podcast. We're now some 60-some-odd episodes in, hard to believe, and it's just been really a fun ride so far, and we're hopefully just getting a little bit better each time we do it. Today, I wanted to focus on something that's uh, kind of something old and something new in the hobby. Uh, if you've been in the hobby a long time, you've no doubt seen your share of stuff become trendy and then it became accepted by the establishment and ultimately became a best practice. And it's funny how in the hobby, the more things change, the more they often seem to be simply evolutions from older practices. For example, the topic today, the rearing of our tropical fish fry. Now, it all starts with food, right? For pretty much as long as anyone can remember in the hobby, we've been culturing living organisms to feed our fry after they've you know hatched and become free swimming and if you've been in the hobby more than a few years you've likely heard of that valuable easy to culture live food known as infusoria remember that word it's one of those aquarium world catch-alls a sort of throwback term if you will from a gentler kinder era in the aquarium hobby the 1950s and early 60s it's a time when undergravel filters freeze-dried foods and airmail of exotic you know fishes from florida was like seriously badass, state-of-the-art, cutting-edge kind of stuff. Now, infusoria may be described as a real, like I said, a catch-all term for small aquatic organisms like eunglenids, protozoa, unicellular algae, tiny inverts, and, you know, little creatures and organisms that are commonly found in freshwater environments like ponds, creeks, drainage ditches, etc. And they're used as a first food for tropical fish fry. Sometimes it's been referred to as green water in older hobby literature, an even more endearing, albeit kind of vague description. Now, in modern formal biological classification, the term infusoria is considered antiquated and an obsolete descriptor, because most of the organisms that were previously included in that group under the collective term infusoria have been assigned to different taxonomic groups and assemblages, which makes sense. Nonetheless, I think it's a charming term that's still used in aquarium circles to describe those little organisms that arise when you soak some blanched lettuce, vegetable skin, or other plant matter in a jar of water. They're perfectly sized for young tropical fish as like a first food once they're free swimming. In fact, around 25 to 300 microns in size, these organisms are probably consumable by most fishes as soon as they've absorbed their yolk sac. It's pretty yummy, I guess, if you're a fish. Sounds good, sounds great, but how do you make this stuff? Well, sounds funny saying make it, but traditionally it was done in a very low-tech way, which you know I love. I love this kind of stuff. You take some blanched lettuce leaves, old flower clippings, hay, whatever. Basically let the stuff decompose in water, and after several days you get this smelly solution of cloudy water that will come up, driven by bacteria. Ultimately, after a few more days, the water will clear when you know creatures like Paramecia and Euglenia arrive on the scene, and via spores that are present in the atmosphere, and they'll start consuming the rampant bacteria population. Voila! In theory, you have an infusoria culture. Like modern magic, huh? Like FC monkeys. This shit's free. <laughs> so, yeah, great. The problem, typically, with infusoria has been the density of the desirable animals to just plain old water is pretty low when you culture it this way, and you'll most likely be feeding your hungry fry with drops of stagnant water and little bits of decomposing lettuce, and a little more. Kind of yucky. Now, the more modern approach would be to obtain a pure starter culture. culture. Boy, I had trouble with that word today. A culture of paramecium uh, from an online biological supply house. And there's plenty of them. Just do, do a Google search. You'll find a few. Paramecium average around 150 microns in size, which is perfect for free-swimming tropical fish fry. 
Now you can use the aforementioned decomposing lettuce as a start, or you can elect to be a bit more clean and modern and use brewer's yeast, which comes in tablets. And I think you use it at a rate of around a half a tablet to a liter of bottle of water. I'm sure there's more exact numbers floating around there of how many to employ, but this is a hobby, right? I'm sure it would work for me. So your mileage may vary as the uh, expression goes. You'd also want to use a few grains of like wheat, which you can grab at the local health food store or supermarket to help kickstart things. You don't overdo it either as you'll end up with a much more stinky culture as a result. And one thing we know about the hobby, especially if you're married or living with somebody in the hobby life balance, the word stinky equals bad. (laughs) Trust me on that. Now you might notice a scum, yep, another technical term, on the surface of the water and perhaps a little bit of an odor, but you're an aquarius, so you used to stinky, smelly, wet stuff, right? And the water will take on a bit of a faint brownish or light greenish color, which is totally normal. And probably the brownish color is quite familiar to us, but different reasons here. After about four or five days, you could take a few drops of water from your culture beneath the surface scum, of course, and examine them under a bright light with a magnifier. And you should be able to see some little tiny silver thingies, I know, another scientific term, wiggling in the water. If you're hardcore like me, you look at them under a, your cool little hobby microscope that you purchased, which is a totally fun tool, by the way, and you'll get a little more accuracy. That tells you it's time to rock and roll. You can feed those baby Tetras, barbs, etc. right away by just dropping, like, I don't know, 40 to 50 milliliters of culture solution into, say, a five-gallon rearing tank. So, you know, go sparingly. Although, it's actually not too big a deal if you add more, because these are harmless organisms, and they naturally be found in water with fishes, albeit at a lower density than they're found in a culture. But since you're doing regular water exchanges in your rearing tank anyway, you're going to minimize pollution along the way. These feed several times a day, and you'll be surprised how quickly the fry learn to recognize and attack these little guys. Sure, there's not really all that much involved in the process of raising infusoria that we've outlined here. Uh, cultures of paramecium are used extensively in labs to rear larval fishes because they're an economical, nutritious option for newly free-swimming fry to feed on. So like many things in the hobby, the approach may have changed, but the idea remains the same, using whatever means we have at our disposal to create the best possible outcomes for our fish efforts. Now, no discussion of rearing our little fishes would be complete without me revisiting that idea of a botanical-influenced nursery tank for fishes. You know where I'm going with this, right? I think it's interesting for a number of reasons. First, as we've discussed many times here, the humic substances and the other compounds associated with leaves and other botanicals when they're released into the water are known to have some beneficial health impacts on fishes. We've referred to those documents and studies previously, and you could find them in our blog. The potential for antimicrobial and antifungal effects is documented, and it's real. Um, Would this just alone be something worth investigating from our unique angle to see how fry react to an environment that's a little cleaner, so to speak? Would eggs have a better success hatching rate for, you know, things that... uh, for, For eggs like killifish or rainbowfish that have a longer developmental period in water? I think so. Additionally, rearing young fishes in the type of environmental conditions that they'll ultimately spend the rest of their lives in makes a lot of sense. Having to acclimate young fishes to unfamiliar or different conditions, however beneficial they might be, it's a stress on little little animals like that. So why not be consistent with the environment from day one? When a botanical-style fry rearing system with its abundance of you know decomposing leaves, biofilms, and microbial creatures be of some benefit? This is the aspect I think we're going to focus on the most here because it has sort of a tie to that infusoria thing. The breakdown and decomposition of various botanical materials it provides a very natural supplemental source of food for young fishes, both directly, which is in the case of xylophores, like, you know, catfish that eat wood, 
and plant parts, and indirectly, as many animals graze on algal, algal growth, biofilms, fungi, and small crustaceans, which inhabit the botanical bed in the aquarium. You've all seen that in the bottom where you have your leaves decomposing. Now, this is pretty interesting stuff to me. Everyone has their own style of rearing fry. However, some hobbyists like, you know, bare-bottom tanks. Some prefer densely planted tanks. I'm proposing the idea of rearing young fishes in a botanical-style blackwater aquarium with leaves, some seed pods, and maybe some plants as well. The physical and functionally, um, these physically and functionally mimic, at least to some extent, the habitats in which many young fishes grow up in or they seek out in the greater natural habitats that they live in. So my thinking is that the decomposing leaves not only provide material for the fishes to feed on and among, but provide a natural shelter for them as well, potentially eliminating or reducing stresses. And in nature, many fry which do not receive parental care tend to hide in the leaves and the bio cover in their natural environment. And providing such natural conditions will certainly accommodate this behavior, won't it? Decomposing leaves can stimulate a certain amount of microbial growth with infusoria and even forms of bacteria becoming potential food sources for fry. I've even read a few studies where phototrophic bacteria were added to the diet of larval fishes, which produced measurably higher growth rates. Now, I'm not suggesting that your fry will gorge on beneficial bacteria cultured in situ in your bacterial nursery and grow exponentially faster. However, I am suggesting that it might provide some beneficial supplemental nutrition at no cost to you. I've experimented with the idea of what I call onboard food culturing in several aquariums over the past few years which were stocked heavily with leaves, twigs, and other botanical materials for the sole purpose of culturing, I guess maybe a better term is recruiting, uh, materials like biofilms, small crustaceans, etc. via decomposition. I've kept a few species of small kerosens, mainly uh, neons, cardinals, and green neon tetras in these systems with no supplemental feeding whatsoever, and I've seen these guys as fat and happy and colorful as any I've ever kept. And it's the same with that beloved aquarium catch-all of infusoria we just talked about. The organisms that are likely to arise when plant matter decomposes in water and in, right? So an aquarium decomposing leaves and such probably has a slightly higher population density of these rather ubiquitous organisms. And those are constantly available to young fishes. I believe they are. And again, if you've noticed in your botanical tanks, when you go on vacation or go a few days without feeding for whatever reason, your fishes tend to not look any different than when you left. I think they're feeding on something, be it directly on the biofilms or the, or the organisms which reside among them. So in not fooling myself into believing that having a large bed of decomposing leaves and botanicals in your aquarium will satisfy every nutritional need of you know a new batch of young kerosens, but it might provide the support for some supplemental feeding or a good portion of the primary feeding. On the other hand, I have been playing recently with this in my Varzea setup, which I've stocked with a rich sort of compost of soil and decomposing leaves. And I've been raising some annual killifishes in that environment with great success and no supplemental feeding again. It's essentially an evolved version of the so-called jungle tanks I used to rear killies when I was a teen. It's a different sort of look and a different sort of function. You know, the so-called permanent setup in which the adults and fry typically coexist with the fry finding food among the natural substrate and other materials present in the tank. Or, of course, you could just take the parents out after the, after the spawning is complete. Choice is yours. But I'd take the concept even a bit further by seeding the tank with some Daphnia or perhaps some other commonly available live freshwater crustaceans and letting them kind of do their thing before the fry even arrive. This way you've got sort of the makings of a little bit of a food web and the small crustaceans will help to feed off some of the available nutrients and lower life forms and the fish are kind of at the top of it. Now granted I'm romancing this bit and probably oversimplifying it quite a bit. 
However, I think there's a compelling case to be made for creating a rearing tank that supports a biologically diverse set of inhabitants for food sources. The basis of it all would be leaves and some of the botanicals, which seem to do a better job at recruiting biofilms than, say, the harder-shelled stuff, um, like jackfruit leaves, yellow mangrove leaves, guava leaves, carina anapods, disloxium pods. I think these would be interesting items to include in a nursery tank. And of course, they provide shelter and foraging areas and impart some tenants to the water, you know, the usual stuff. It's fun to play with these new ideas and or evolve old ones. Maybe this won't be the ultimate fryering technique. However, it's just another one of those ideas to have in our arsenal of skills that would I think would be fun for the serious breeder to experiment with. I think it's one we have seriously legit basis for playing with at least a little bit more. And I say to the breeder who may have, for one reason or another, decided to use different foods to give the old school method a try once in a while. Not just because it works, but to sort of help keep alive a direct link to the past of our fish keeping heritage with a more modern approach, of course. And for that matter, let's continue to push into some new ground with the botanical style nursery approach too. It's worked well in nature for eons, right? So yeah. Until next time, watch those little creatures swim, feed those fry, go old school and try a new twist as well. Stay diligent, stay observant, stay creative, stay dedicated, stay devoted, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for stopping by and spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.